Number 514 has just been announced as a song of encouragement. And we certainly will use that a bit later in the lesson today as we look forward to the opportunity of making a response in a public way if that call be needed for you and me to make that in a positive way. As was mentioned in the announcements as well as in the prayer, it is a great privilege and a great blessing that we have to assemble today. It is the first day of the week, that very specially ordained day, the New Testament, that not only allows us to commemorate around the table what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us, but allows us to be recharged and challenged as we do those things that are commanded by Him and do so in a way that not only brings glory to Him, but puts us in a frame of mind to serve in the proper way. We're thankful that we each has been able to assemble today, not only our visitors, but our membership alike. And it is in light of that that I would like to point a question to each of us. Are you faithful? Are you faithful? Over the next few moments this morning, you might have noted from the text of Revelation 2.10 that Brother Jonathan read for us, we will in fact build a lesson around the thought of that question, not only individually asking it of ourselves, but striving to appreciate what's involved in answering it. It could well be that you and I might deceive ourselves and quickly say, yes, I'm faithful. I might ask, are you sure? Based on the definition and the descriptions provided in the Word of God, can I know that I'm faithful? If so, what a glorious blessing that would be because that degree of faithfulness appreciates in your mind and mine the thought of, in fact, what it is that God demands of those that are His children. Some introductory thoughts pointing us toward the revelation of that thought might well be these. Deception is such an easy thing, isn't it? Prompted by Satan, the way in which he can set things before us, the rationalization that you and I do, I justify myself despite all the evidence to a contrary. Our world is awash with that degree of deceit, isn't it? A person at times can be directly confronted with some particular action, and even then, isn't it tempting to try to excuse it or to even deny it? In 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, didn't Saul fall prey to that very mode of behavior? God had, in fact, commanded him exactly to destroy the Amalekites and to do so with thoroughness and completeness. And yet he spared Agag and the animals. And even when Samuel confronted him with it, he denied it. A little bit later in that chapter, thankfully, he did admit and confess, I have sinned. In fact, those words emanating from his lips were a simple reminder of the fact that he had fallen far from the degree of faithfulness that God had expected of him. Today, you and I certainly can appreciate that same possibility. I would invite you to study with me for the next few moments from that text in Revelation 2 about the question, are you faithful? Let's revisit that scene in Revelation, the second chapter. I would invite you to read with me verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And in so doing, we note the following inspired language. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear to hear, I'm sorry, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And with that, this brief little letter addressed to the church at Smyrna closes. A few comments or remarks might well be in order. That city of Smyrna was, of course, the place in which one of the seven churches of Asia was located. Among those congregations, we recall there was the church at Ephesus, and the church at Smyrna, and the church at Pergamos, and the church at Thyatira, and the church at Sardis, and also at Philadelphia, and finally at Laodicea. And in every one of those instances, the inspired writer, in fact, directed these words of exhortation, these words often of great rebuke, these words reminding them of some shortcomings. As we read those brief seven letters to those seven churches of Asia, we remember that in many instances the things that were directed bring us to realize some of these. First of all, the Lord made this statement, in verse 9, I know thy works. It is not that the Lord wondered. It is not that He said perhaps. He knew exactly, thoroughly, and completely what it was that was taking place in Smyrna. He knew the shortcomings of their life. He also knew the successes. In light of the coming judgment, He pointed out to them in such loving character what needed to be changed, what needed to be corrected, and how things ought to be different. He went on to quickly say, I know your tribulation. Things had not been easy in Smyrna. Due to the intense persecution and the difficulties of that first century era, things had not been easy for Christians. Even in Smyrna, problems, hardships, and great oppressions had reigned supreme, and the people clearly beneath that load would have been tempted to buckle, been tempted to become unfaithful, been tempted to, in fact, just do what it was that was convenient. He went on to say, I know your poverty. You and I realize that we have been so richly blessed materially. I suspect it's well that all of us have plenty of food on our table. We have a roof on our back. We have clothes to appropriately clothe us. Here, there were people in Smyrna that were, in fact, suffering beneath the hardship of poorness. Maybe they were very hungry. Perhaps they did not have the things physically that led to comfort in terms of life. Jesus said, I know it. He went on to say, but you're rich. There was an appreciation in which they, though there may not have been a lot of money, there was nonetheless an appreciation that there was something more important than that. They were rich. And the richness is perhaps echoed in the words that come in what follows, the words of warning. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. There were some who were hypocrites in that first century era, weren't they? There were some who had made claim to the fact that we are of the synagogue of Judaism and that we are those that appropriately follow that which is right. But the Lord was quick to remind them they are not. What they said and what they practiced was two different things. That is still a loathsome thing in the eyes of our Heavenly Father, isn't it? We will recall 
that in these words he goes on to say, not only are they in fact not of the Jews as they claim, they are of the synagogue of Satan. What worse place would there be than that? To be accorded with the assembly of Satan. To be reckoned amongst the number that in fact enjoy membership in and apparently a degree of pleasure meeting with the synagogue of Satan. We notice that here in Smyrna, the Lord had uttered these thoughts, reminding them about the reality of this. It was in that way, verse 10 went on to march forward like this. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. To the church in Smyrna, the Lord said, Let me assure you, it's not over yet. There will be continuing hardships. There will be continuing difficulties. There will be increased poverty perhaps. Let me assure you, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He doesn't say you're not going to fear. I'm sorry, he doesn't say you're not going to suffer. He doesn't say you're not going to be called upon to endure hardship. Furthermore, he said, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. There is a tremendously powerful one at work. As such, he will have a degree of capability in which, by his working, he's going to bring persecution. And some of you, some of you will be cast into prison. We notice here that even more so than simple poverty, even more so than other ordinary hardships, some of them would be jailed. Some of them would be incarcerated. Some of them would, in fact, be put in places that were extraordinarily unpleasant. Jail cells of the first century held no candle in comparison to jail cells of today. There wasn't a nice compound to enjoy television. There wasn't anything to enjoy luxuries. Quite often in that era, they were simple walls. You were chained to them. It was damp. It was dark. It was uncomfortable. And it was that way because that's what they thought prisoners were supposed to, in fact, suffer. Some of you are going to be cast into prison. We remember that when Paul and Silas in the 16th chapter of Acts, it was at midnight when they themselves were in prison and they were in fact found singing. We notice that more things are said here. Ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. That word ten appears to be used in a way reminding them that this period of difficulty that was going to come this period of hardship that they were about to endure was a period that in the grand scheme of things was relatively brief. But nonetheless, it appears by the usage of the word, intent, the word tribulation that it would be intense. I wonder if you had been a member of the church at Smyrna, how would you have heard these words? Lord, I'm already suffering. There isn't enough food on my table. Those who are coming to collect the bills are already at my door and I have not wherewithal to pay them. Times are already hard and things now you're telling me are going to get worse. I may be cast into prison. Not only that, you now tell me that for this period of ten days, things are going to be so intense and extreme that the word tribulation is a fair description. And all the while, in light of all of that, you tell me not to fear. And what's more... Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The Lord demanded of them faithfulness. Be thou faithful unto death. 
Isn't it interesting as you and I reflect upon this which the Lord demanded? He said faithful. There are many things, many descriptives, many adjectives in life that many things in the world choose to pursue. There are some who prefer fame, and there are some who prefer popularity, and there are some who prefer notoriety. But the Lord didn't say that any of those things will in fact lead to that crown of life. He said, be faithful. And what the Lord penned to this church at Smyrna so many centuries ago is still as needful and as vital and as useful today as it was then. You and I too are admonished, don't work for fame and fortune and notoriety, but work for faithfulness. It is with that thought in mind I would invite us to ask, what then did the Lord say to them? And in what way might it be so useful and helpful to us? That word faithful comes from the original word pistos. And the word means trusty or trustworthiness. As you can see, it means reliable. It has behind it the thought of dutifulness. And even beyond that, to be able to be counted on that which is true, that which in fact is a reliable matter. As you can imagine, that kind of appreciation for that word it is a word that occurs fairly often in the New Testament. All those words that you and I encounter, such as the word belief, the word faith, all of those, at least many of them I should say, come at least in some way based upon the usage of that original word. Look at just a few of the ways that word is used. I would invite you to not lose sight of where we began. We noticed that the church in Smyrna was admonished to be faithful, Let's look at some of the other ways that word is used and perhaps it will shed a great light upon what God does expect of you and of me. First of all, God is said to be faithful in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. That marvelous and awesome God of heaven that we consider He is described as being faithful. Might we ask, is God reliable? Is He trustworthy? Is He able to be counted on to carry out the promises and duties that He has described? And the answer is an overwhelming yes. He is perfect in every regard when it comes to His faithfulness. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The famous words of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. But not only might we notice God's faithfulness, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have expected that since He is a member of the Godhead, that He too is faithful. In the Second Thessalonian letter, isn't that thought highlighted that the Lord is in fact faithful? As you can look down that list, you see that this attribute of faithfulness is described in a number of ways of Christ and His role as the high priest. We have been studying in the book of Leviticus on Sunday morning for quite some time, both it and in the book of Exodus, as it relates to the operations and the duties and the charges and the challenges of the priest. We have often reminded ourselves of the great care that was required of them to carry out those duties correctly. One word that we might say is, if you and I had lived in that Law of Moses era, and if we had been Jews we would have hoped that the priest would be faithful in his duties as carrying out what was required. The Lord Jesus Christ is a faithful high priest. 
He offered that perfect sacrifice for sins. And even now, He, of course, reigns at the right hand of God, faithfully carrying out all the duties that have been bequeathed and given to Him to do. You'll notice in light of that faithfulness, one of the things that we are so thankful for, no doubt, the forgiveness of sins. Is God faithful to forgive our sins? 1 John 1 verses 7 through 9 tell us that He is. And how thankful we can be that when we approach God appropriately in repentance and confession, the other acts required of us, He is faithful in a perfect way to forgive those sins. That degree of permanence and that degree of faithfulness highlighted perhaps in these ways as well. There are some loving servants of God that also are described as faithful. Such men as Moses and Tychicus and Epaphras, all given in scriptures that I've noted, I might ask, we notice that church in Smyrna was commanded to be faithful. It sounds like that degree of faithfulness is given to us by way of example for many things in my life and yours. I suppose it's time to return to the question, are you faithful and am I faithful? That's not a trivial question, but rather a question fraught with meaning and significance. Might we now take some of these things we've noted Revisit Revelation 2.10 and make some continuing applications. In light of the difficulties of this life, they as well as we are admonished to be faithful. And upon so doing, the crown of life would be yours. In prayer a moment ago, we each made the thought and hopefully were able to amen it at least mentally that we are looking forward to a home in heaven. We're excited about that thought because we understand this life is in fact so encumbered with the difficulties of sin and error, but yet we know none of that will be present in heaven. And we know that there the perfectness of God will be appreciated for all that it is. And yet here we notice that church in Smyrna, despite the evil government that reigns in Rome, despite the difficulties that are so prevalent, he said, you be faithful. Don't worry about convenience as much as faithfulness. Don't worry about ease or luxury in life as much as you worry about faithfulness. Faithfulness is the critical matter. After all, wouldn't it be fair to say that to have lived life and to done so without correct regard for faithfulness, what would it be worth upon your death? Because then to stand before the God of heaven at judgment and for Him to say, you have not been faithful. All the things that this life may have garnered and all the other matters this life may have made available would matter nothing at all then. Be thou faithful unto death. You see, the Christian life from what we read in the New Testament is not a life that is made correct and right before God by a few spectacular acts that garner a great deal of attention and put our name on the map of international fame. That's not what does it. Rather, what God wishes is a life of daily, constant, thorough devotion and dedication to Him that doesn't necessarily garner limelight, but that's faithful. In the Old Testament, we find more than one example. Was it not Naaman who in 2 Kings 5 desired to have some great thing done over him so that he could be cleansed of leprosy? 
when all the prophet commanded was to go and dip seven times in the muddy Jordan River. At first, Naaman was angry. At first, Naaman was filled with wrath. At first, Naaman was not going to do that because it didn't co correspond to what he thought was proper and what he thought would be the right thing for him to accomplish given that he was of such a high stature in men. But yet he did it. And upon coming out of that water, he was cleansed. Might we appreciate in light of these thoughts that faithfulness is something in which God simply demands of us some thoughts that point us to some ways that we think about faithfulness. There are a lot of things in your life and mine that you and I expect to be faithful. Think about the water heater in your house. You and I expect to turn on the faucet, be it the bathroom or the kitchen, and to have hot water at our disposal. That's what the water heater is there for. May I ask, suppose that water heater only provided hot water five days out of every seven. Would you consider it faithful? Or would you consider it needful to replace it or to repair it? There, that's only five days out of seven, and I feel sure each of us would reckon it to be unsatisfactory. That is not faithful enough. Maybe another example. That car that's sitting in your driveway, or perhaps the one here outside the building. Again, we expect that when we get up in the morning or when we are preparing to go somewhere, we get in it, we turn the key, the ignition begins or starts the car, and we expect it to run. What if it doesn't? What if half the time that car doesn't start, would you consider it faithful? Is it faithful enough to pass the satisfactory requirements of your life, or would you take it to repairman? Would you do something about it? Would you replace the parts that are causing it to be not as faithful as it ought to be? The answer is obvious, isn't it? We again would not consider that kind of car a faithfully operating car. Maybe another example, that refrigerator that's in your kitchen. We again expect that to operate. In fact, we expect it to operate in such a way it provides us with chilled beverages and chilled foods. The freezer compartment needs to maintain the proper temperature. What if that refrigerator operated, say, four days out of seven? Would it be faithful? That is to say, would you consider it operating correctly or would you in fact quickly try and find a repairman, perhaps replace it completely if needed? So far you'll notice that we've made mention of items, be it a car, be it a refrigerator, be it a water heater, and we've noticed that three days out of six, four days out of seven are not satisfactory. I think we each appreciate that with regard to things like that, faithful means seven days a week. It means all the time. What about another example? To those of you that have a tractor, we know that we may not use it every time or every day. But when you go out to the barn or to the shed to make use of it, don't you expect it to operate? What if out of every three times you go to use it, it runs one of them? Is it a faithful tractor? Would the circumstances surrounding it be described by the word faithful? Do you think that would be an apt description? 
the answer again is obvious, isn't it? None of us, if we had such a tractor, would wish it to remain in that state because it isn't usable nearly as much as we would like for it to be. Suffice it to say, we can even apply that to people. To, that, to those of you that perhaps are managers at a place of business, or perhaps you have responsibility over others, if there's an employee working beneath you, and that individual is one that does a good job about half the time, and the other half of the time either doesn't show up or doesn't do the work correctly, would you consider that person faithful? Is it a faithful employee? I believe, again, it's easy to say, we in such a position would begin to have some conversations with that person, trying to change some behavior. Otherwise, they would be terminated. Someone else who is faithful would be hired and used to fill that slot. All of that challenges us to notice. In every one of these descriptions so far, the word no is out there to the far right. They aren't faithful. Working half the time, four days out of seven, even five days out of seven is not faithful. But look at something such as the rotation of earth. Is earth's rotation faithful? Is it something that's trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can it be counted upon? Is it true? We know that it is. Rolling along its side, taking 24 hours to do so, we appreciate that the rising of the sun and the setting thereof is governed by it and is something that has been since the dawn of time. And in so doing, that's a faithful matter, isn't it? Day by day, we can count upon this which the God of heaven has put in place. Maybe one last example. That sun that burns in the sky, providing us with the energy that we appreciate to provide the plants to grow and the other things, that sun burns so brightly and does so faithfully. These questions perhaps lead us to this. What about the application to me now as a Christian? If a tractor or a car or a water heater or these other things that we've noted, if five and six and four days out of seven is not enough, what about a Christian who is faithful four days out of seven? Five days out of seven even six days out of seven. Is that Christian faithful? Our idea seems to then lead easily to an answer. We've noticed that to be counted on, we need to be reliable all the time. That implies a few of the thoughts you could see on that slide. Do you look at the Bible more than once a week? Do you open it and use it to encourage you and assist you and learn from it? Notice again, one day out of seven certainly wouldn't be called faithful, but yet if I'm only reading it one day out of seven, would I be called a faithful Bible reader? What about a prayer life? Do I go five and six days without ever bowing my head to pray? Would that be called a faithful prayer life? It certainly doesn't seem very consistent, very constant, and certainly not as greatly reliable as it ought to be. During the gospel meeting that we had, month before last. Brother Sims encouraged us to think about constancy, faithfulness as it comes to reading the Bible, as it comes to activities and prayer. You'll notice that this very lesson before us touches on those same concepts, doesn't it? Consider yet something else. 
What about my giving? As I have been prospered, do I do that about half the time? We learned earlier that a car that starts half the time isn't faithful. If I'm only giving as I've been prospered half the time, am I too not unfaithful? All of these matters of Christian duty and all of these considerations of Christian obligation challenge us that here to that church, he said, be faithful unto death. You'll notice one last thing. What about my attendance? The elders of the church and the church here at Pippin have made the observation that four assemblies for a given week are set before us. The Bible study on Sunday morning, the worship on Sunday morning, the worship on Sunday afternoon, and the Bible study on Wednesday evening. Out of 168 hours in a week, that totals only four hours. Am I here at every one of them? Am I here at every one of them? If not, am I faithful? You'll notice that anything less than that otherwise wouldn't be accepted by any of us. If a car ran three times out of four, that still wouldn't be good enough. We, you see, expect in terms of mechanical things that faithfulness means all the time. I wonder, am I applying the same thing to my life in Christ? Am I always striving all six days during the week and then on Sunday to do the things that would be appropriate for a Christian? What about the language you use? Do you talk the same on Sunday as you do on Thursday? Do you speak in the same way around your friends on a Monday as you do at Bible study on Wednesday? We ought to be consistent and faithful as Christians. Our language ought to be appropriate and right everywhere we are. And the places we visit should be acceptable in God's sight no matter what day of the week it is. The characteristic of our worship then ought to be able to meet on those occasions on Sundays and Wednesdays with a wholehearted degree of what it means to be faithful. Be thou faithful unto death. Upon faithfulness to death there's a great promise stated, and I will give thee a crown of life. If you and I expect to receive the crown of life, the condition upon which that's based as Christians is being faithful unto death. Are you faithful this morning? Am I faithful this morning? We'll use that thought to close this lesson and summarize it in these words. The church in Smyrna, despite the hardships and difficulties, was told, be faithful. No matter what else things may come your way, you be faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ still says that to you and me today. These centuries removed. Put your name in the slot. Blank, be faithful unto death. If today your life has not been the hallmark of faithfulness, though once you became a Christian, but you haven't lived a life of consistent, trustworthy, reliable, dedicated faithfulness, make things right today. Make a change in such a way that you again invite the Lord into your life and you enthrone Him in His rightful place. Follow Him with all the earnestness and dedication of your life. Be faithful. Upon so doing, the crown of life will be yours. It could be, though, that there's one or more in this audience that's never become a Christian. You have never yet begun to walk the way of faithfulness, and at this point you've kept the Lord at bay. If we could be of helpfulness to you, realize that the Lord demands that you believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. 
The baptismal waters are prepared and ready, and we could rejoice with you today on your obedience to the Master. If we could be of help to any person today within the sound of my voice, in such a way to encourage faithfulness, we'd be delighted to do that. And if we could be of assistance to you now, would you not let us know in the way we could do so while together we stand and while we sing?